Matthew writes in his gospel, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of our Lord. Preachers got to have arm space. I am really excited to share the word with you today, just totally refreshed by a time with about 20 other guys this weekend from Redemption City Church, diving into the word, exploring God's creation together, getting sweaty playing basketball, just refreshed my soul. So I thank you for you brothers and the time that we had together. Let's pray together before we get into God's word. Lord Jesus, you are the high king of heaven who won the victory for us that we could praise you as we were designed to do for all eternity. You won that victory to overcome our sin, our guilt, our shame, our condemnation. So would you now, God, open our eyes to give us a glorious vision of that king who sits on his glorious throne that we would become like Him, we would love Him, and love like He does, by pouring our souls into Your people. God, make Redemption City Church a glorious testimony of Your grace. Amen. What is church to you, this church? When you say that you are going to church, what, what's in your mind as you say that? Or if you're outside of this gathering and you go somewhere and say, I go to Redemption City Church, what does that even mean? I had this professor in seminary 
who is such a stickler over using that phrase, going to church. Anytime any of us said we're going to church, he would stop us and rebuke us. It was so frustrating every single day I heard him say that. He was kind of a special guy. He is the same age as me, yet he had two PhDs, multiple theological degrees, and he taught at a rigorous theological seminary. And he analyzed grammar like crazy. He would always tell me that I used too many passive verbs in my writing. I didn't know what a nominalization was, and my sentences are far too wordy, like this run-on sentence that I'm speaking. And then if you're in class and you speak up, you have the boldness to finally speak up, he'll say, I didn't understand that sentence you just used. So he would type it out and it would show up on the screen in front of class and he'd break your sentence into phrases and ask you to decode it. How does each phrase relate to the other? I don't even think that carefully about my own words. I just thought, man, he is just some special kind of guy who likes all of his ducks in a row and doesn't know how to relate to the ordinary person. But he was always after us for saying that we were going to church. I just assumed it was another one of those things. He would always scold us, you don't go to church, we are the church. Certainly, technically, he's right. The building we meet in, especially this middle school cafeteria, is not the church. Even the event that we gather on Sunday mornings for a couple hours, this isn't church. We, believers in Christ together, are the church. So we we get that, but I just don't understand why he made it such a big deal all the time. Until I actually became a pastor. And I had to read my Bible more. And especially until I got to Matthew chapter 25, our text for today, and I see this coming judgment, and I realize Andy was right. We really need to be careful about how we understand what the church is, because our eternal lives depend on it. This confusion that, and about the way that we speak of what church is, I think it's created a bit of an identity crisis in the church in America. Perhaps, as you men heard this weekend, Satan's sifting us, shaking us to see who is pure. I meet so many people who claim to be Christian and can't articulate a basic understanding of the gospel. Two parts. Jesus died, he rose from the dead. Others who seem to understand at least that part think that basic fact is only about getting us into heaven someday. has nothing to do with the life we live right now on earth. And I've spoken with so many of you who say that maybe you grew up in the church or you've had a significant church experience and then you open your Bible and start reading and you suddenly realize what I've experienced isn't what I'm reading it should be. The average Christian can't understand what the purpose of the church here on earth is. But from our text this morning, we need to realize that our eternal identity is intricately tied to our relationship to the church. Your salvation is not just about you and Jesus, but Jesus is telling us here that the way you experience Him here on earth, the way that you serve Him as your King, the way that you express your love for Him, is through a committed relationship with His church. 
And so our main idea today is to glorify King Jesus by loving His people. Glorify our mighty, beautiful, wonderful King Jesus by loving His busted up, ugly, ordinary, strange people. This text is kind of interesting because the context of it is the final judgment of the whole earth. And as I began working on the text, I was thinking to myself, oh shoot, another condemnation type sermon. I just don't want to go here. If you were here a few weeks ago, I had to preach through hypocrisy and that was a really hard sermon. I just didn't have the energy for another one of those types of sermons. But as I dug into the text, I realized that though the scene is one of judgment, this is a message of hope and encouragement for us all. And I want us to find that hope and encouragement in this text. So I'm going to break it up into three parts. First, we'll see the glory of our king in verses 31 to 33. And then the question after that is, what do we do about that? You see this grand vision of the glorious king. How do we respond? How do we glorify him? So verses 34 to 40 will show us how we give our service to the king. And then finally, that service we see will be evidence on the day of judgment of our king. And we'll see in verses 41 to 46. So let's go back to verse 31 and just read those first couple of verses and see the glory of our King. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. As Jesus is painting this picture for His disciples on the Mount of Olives, they're already quite familiar with this language. Things are coming to mind as he's speaking. All of chapters 24 and 25, this all of it discourse from Jesus, borrows language from the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, especially chapter 7. We're not going to have a whole lot of time to go there, so just put a note in and go read Daniel 7 after church today. Oh, I did it. I just said after church. In Daniel chapter 7, the imagery there is of the messianic son of man, this anointed man who is high above all others, who's going to come to earth and inherit all the kingdoms and bring judgment upon the nations. He's going to come in the clouds in great glory and restore peace, joy, prosperity, righteousness to the people of Israel. And when Daniel brought these words, it was a great encouragement to them. Because for decades, they didn't actually live in Israel. They were in Babylon and Assyria and Persia and spread all over the world. They weren't home. And they wondered, are we ever going to get to go home? They lived as slaves in a foreign land, even threatened with extermination, as we see in the book of Esther. They wondered, would they outlive this exile and get to go home to their land of their ancestors? And Daniel assured them, yes, it's coming. It's coming soon, my brothers. You will get to go home. And when you get there, 
God is going to send or raise up a son of man who is going to bring judgment on all those wicked nations who are hurting you. It's coming, my friends. So when Jesus starts using this language, they're getting excited. You can imagine what they're thinking. All right, here we are in the land. It's happening, guys. Jesus is claiming to be the Son of Man. He's shown authority over all kinds of things. It's only a matter of time before He brings judgment on those Romans and on those Samaritans and all those wicked nations. And Jesus then indicates, though, that it's not quite the judgment that they're expecting. Yes, He is the Son of Man. Yes, He has command over all the armies of angels. Yes, He is going to sit on the throne and judge all the earth. But when the nations are gathered before His throne, it's not going to be Israel on His right and all the other nations on the left. But sheep on the right and goats on the left. This imagery is really important. And the sheep and the goats that they were familiar with in the land of Israel, in ancient Israel, they looked rather similar. So if you stood off in the distance, they all kind of might have had speckles and they would intermix as they would graze together in the same pastures. It would take an experienced shepherd who knew his sheep well to be able to approach them and separate his sheep from the goats that belonged to somebody else. Jesus is the great shepherd we've seen. And the whole world is His pasture. And one day, when it's time for the slaughter of the goats, He's going to call His sheep to Himself and put them on His right hand. And He wants them to know that all the sheep are not from Israel. And not all Israel are sheep. We've seen hints of this throughout the Old Testament that people from outside nations are actually faithful to God, like Rahab or Ruth. I wonder even maybe Nebuchadnezzar. It's got an interesting story. It might be difficult for us to tell because the sheep and the goats look somewhat similar. But Jesus knows His sheep. On that final day, He's going to put the sheep on His right hand. The the side of blessing. The hand of honor. of, Of glory. Of favor. And on His left, He'll put all the rest. The left hand is the hand you use for dishonorable functions. You don't shake someone's left hand because that's going to be quite dirty. No, we have difficulty knowing. Jesus knows His sheep. And He will bring judgment on that final day to those who are imposters. But every judgment requires some evidence. Innocence will not be announced without evidence of faithfulness. And condemnation will not be declared without evidence of rebellion. So let's turn back to verse 34 and we'll see there Jesus' announcement of innocence for His sheep and the supporting evidence of their service to the King. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave Me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, "Uh, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and, and visit you? 
And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So back in Daniel chapter 7, when the Son of Man finally sits on His throne, He's going to gather people from every nation, people and language around Him, to serve Him. In the mind of Israel, that's something negative, but Jesus has something different in mind as we've seen. A a king, a glorious king, deserves such service. That's kind of difficult for us to imagine because we don't live in a country that has kings and we don't have slaves and household servants much in this world, in this country. So we have a hard time understanding what it might look like to be a servant to the king. But in the ancient world, you come to a new country and you conquer that. If you don't kill everyone off, the people who are left, you take in to be your slaves. There'll be people who work in the palaces to feed you, to make your food. There'll be You'll enlist them in your army in the worst positions of duty. Or they'll be slaves to build your palaces and temples. But Jesus' reign is much different. He has something else in mind when He wants people to serve Him. We see this list of rather ordinary things. When He's hungry or thirsty, He doesn't just command you, make Him food. He says, share your meals with Me. When He needs a place to stay, He says, bring Me into My house. When He needs a shirt, Let him use yours. If he's sick or in prison, come, spend time with him. Be with him. He wants you to be with him, to be a caring friend. These are the things that will be evidenced evidenced on the day of judgment. But if you think about it, it's interesting because only a few people in the history of the world actually have the opportunity to do those things for him. He had 12 disciples, maybe a couple hundred extra people that were involved in his ministry. So you wonder, well, they had the opportunity. How could we? How could anybody throughout history have this opportunity to do these things for the king? Well, that's what the sheep are asking in verse 37. When did we do these things for you? How could we possibly have done this type of service for you? And Jesus' response then is vital for answering the question of what is the church, for shaping our language about the church. He says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. Your service to one another, to the people sitting next to you and in front of you and behind you, that is service to King Jesus. Brothers here means both men and women, brothers and sisters, all the people who are bought by Jesus' blood. He's talking to his disciples at the time who are just men, so it makes sense just to say brothers. But he has in mind everybody. He says the way you glorify him is to take care of his people. The primary focus of our love for our glorious king is to love each other. This message, you'll hear oftentimes this, these verses, what you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me, is oftentimes used to invoke some sense of guilt that we ought to be helping the poor, that we need to have some government programs to help the needy in the world. That's not what it's about. This is a special call to be merciful to the poor and needy among us, the brothers and sisters of Jesus. 
We show our love for Christ by knitting our lives together, being dependent upon one another. It's not just being kind whenever I have an opportunity that arises occasionally. We, we should be nice to people. We should love our enemies. But there's a special kind of love that Jesus says the church should have. Paul wrote this way in Galatians at the end of his letter to the Galatians. He said, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is our witness to the world. Our love for one another, the unique way we take care of each other, should be so radically different from the world that everyone says, what is it that you guys have? Jesus says in John 10, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for each other. There's no such thing as being too inward focused as a church if you're properly inward focused. If you have the right inward focus that seeks seeks to glorify Jesus through your abundant service, that's going to be a witness to the world as it pours out to others and invites them in. And it's all done through these very practical, ordinary things. We reformed types like to talk about the glory of God a lot. Someone tell me what the first answer to the Westminster Catechism is. The chief end of man is to glorify God. Thanks, Adeline. And enjoy Him forever. That part's important. And then, in our minds, what do we think, Patrick? We think that means we need to go read our Bibles a lot. And that we spend two hours in the morning praying and two hours at lunch praying and then three more hours in the evening praying. And that you show up to church Sunday morning. I did it again. You show up to the worship service Sunday morning to gather with the church. And you get here at 8 to help set up and you don't leave till the last chair is taken down. That's real glorifying God. Or maybe you think, as our Sunday school class was discussing this morning, that evangelism is what glorifies God. That's what we ought to be all about. But that's not what Jesus says here. I think that all of these wonderful things that we love to pursue should be the necessary fuel for doing what truly glorifies our King. We dig into the Word. We spend lots of time in prayer. We participate in these Sunday gatherings in order to be shaped to be like Jesus who serves His people. We go on mission in the world to invite people into this life, this care for one another, because we love it so much we want others to participate in it. As John Piper wrote, missions exist because worship doesn't. We, we go into the world to invite others into this glorious experience with our Savior as we serve one another. We bring meals to each other when someone's in need. We provide clothes or shelter when someone needs help, when they're lacking. We spend time with someone who's sick. We invite others into our homes. You know, the word that Jesus uses for visit here, visiting a sick person or someone in prison, isn't Just pop in, say a quick prayer, maybe read a Bible verse and pat on the back. It suggests someone who stays there a long time until they recover. I am visiting with you, being your companion. This is the kind of service that Jesus has in mind. It's what Rosaria Butterfield, if you've read her recent book, would call radically ordinary. 
It's ordinary because it takes care of the basic needs that every one of you has. Food, clothing, shelter, companionship. But it's radical because it's so rare in our culture, isn't it? People all around us in this city are sick and tired and lonely despite the facade that they put over in front of them of prosperity, of success, of happiness. They need this kind of love. And we can call them out of that loneliness into this relationship with Jesus and His brothers and sisters. Into a family where they don't ever need to experience that loneliness anymore. The beauty of this has become really clear to me and I hope to all of you guys too as we've seen some adoptions over the last couple, or last month, much more recent. Especially I think of the Exteds who had to travel to Arizona for their adoption and they knew they had to stay down there a couple of weeks to work on their paperwork to get all the legal process done. And they didn't want to spend a ton of money on a hotel So they asked some churches in the area if they had someone who could put them up for a little while. And can you believe that somebody volunteered that the ex-deads could come and stay in their house? Not just stay with them, but they moved out for two weeks and stayed with a friend so the ex-deads could have their five-bedroom house with a swimming pool and a full kitchen and everything. They said, make our home yours. Incredible hospitality. And Redemption City Church helped them get there with generous offerings to cover these expensive adoption costs. One of you even went with them down to Arizona to take care of their kids while they were in the hospital. And while they're away, a group of you raided their house, cleaned everything, and filled their kitchen with food, dropped off a bunch of baby items. That is serving a family in need. That is is the most glorifying thing for Jesus we can do. As I process just the magnitude of that, and I'm thinking about this text, I I realize that Jesus is telling us that no Christian should ever be without the basic necessities of life. No Christian should ever be on mission throughout this world somewhere, whether it's adoption or just traveling to visit and encourage someone and have to stay in a hotel. Because our homes are wide open. We have millions of people coming to this city every year for treatment at Mayo Clinic. We should put those hospitals out of, or those hotels out of business. Because our homes are open. This is our joyful way that we love to glorify Jesus. This is the evidence that will be brought forward on the day of judgment. Will you be seen as one of the faithful sheep? Have you given your life to glorifying King Jesus in this way? Now, I need to stop and be careful here. Pause for a minute before we move on because it's easy to hear things like this, a call to service, and immediately start thinking, this is my ticket to heaven. This is the way I earn my favor with Jesus. But there's some key words here that indicate otherwise. Notice in verse 34, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So what came first? These acts of service or the promise of the Father? The promise of the blessing of an inheritance was given before the foundation of the world. 
Before you existed, you who are in Christ were made to be kings in this kingdom. Incredible. They're called righteous in verse 37, not because they did the good deeds, but because they're blessed by the Father. They're only able to do these good things because of this blessing. They are blessed with the righteousness of the Father. These deeds are proof, simply evidence that righteousness is in them. Even the way that the sheep respond, I think, is funny in verses 37 and 38. It's the same as the goats. What? When did we do these things? They don't even realize that they're doing them. They're not trying to prove their righteousness and impress the king. They just are doing it because it seems like the decent thing to do. But that's the point. The only reason they think this ordinary service is the decent thing to do is because of God's righteousness in them. And the reason why this world is so dark and lonely is because the decent thing to do is impossible for everybody apart from Christ. And there will be great consequences for that. So let's move on to verse 41 and see the judgment of the king that's coming upon the goats who are on his left. And he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This corresponding response to the goats on the left is kind of a negative match of everything that he was said to the sheep on the right. So instead of inviting to come, he commands them to depart. Instead of blessing them, he curses them. Instead of a kingdom prepared for you, it's eternal fire prepared. The evidence mirrors exactly what was the evidence for the righteousness of the sheep. Feeding, clothing, welcoming, visiting. They didn't do the things the faithful ones were supposed to do. They committed sins of omission. They didn't do the right thing. They didn't do what God commands, what God expects. Equally as offensive to God as stepping over the line and doing what He told you not to. And the response of the condemned in verse 44 summarizes their heart problem. When did we not minister to you? The word minister there is the word deacon. When did we not deacon you? All of you are called to be a deacon in some sense, a servant. You're all called to serve. And if you've been saved by Jesus, if you profess faith in Christ, then you are professing that you have embraced your identity as a servant. Every one of you who claims to be a servant or Christian, is claiming that God has blessed you before the foundations of the world to serve His people, to be a servant in His kingdom. So, again, another text from Sunday school. Paul said in Ephesians 4, 
that it's your service, your ministry that builds the body up into maturity, builds the body up to make Jesus look good. God didn't just save you so you could be forgiven and go to heaven someday. Jesus bought you with his own blood to make you one of his servants in his kingdom. Your new identity in Christ is a servant who loves him by loving his people. If you're not serving God's people, if you're not serving in the church, then you're not serving Jesus and you are an imposter. But if you are in Christ, and you'll desire these relationships, you'll just be hungry for them like those people and like the sheep in verses 37-38. It's just a decent thing to do because the Spirit is alive in you. I also think of a message I heard this weekend at our men's retreat. We had Pastor Chad Scarin from Redemption Hill in, in Stuartville come up and share a message with us. And he just burned this quote into my heart. It's been resonating ever since. If we had any idea of the fierceness of our enemy, we would run to discipleship. If we had any idea of the fierceness of our enemy, Satan, we would run to these types of relationships. Jesus warned us that this life is going to be full of trouble. Satan desires to sift every single one of you like wheat and prove you're all hypocrites. God is going to let him. God is going to let him test you. But Jesus promised that he will pray for his sheep and he will strengthen his sheep to endure. And then it's your responsibility when you come out of the other side of the trial to turn around and grab a hold of your brother or sister and help them through. Friends, committing to a local body of believers, or to say it another way, joining a church in membership is not an optional part of the Christian life. It's not legalistic to say that you should join a church. It's essential to your faithfulness. It's the means by which you serve your king. It's the evidence that proves your faith. It's the accountability that strengthens you through the trials in life. It's not simply doing religious things. You can come to church. You can open your Bible and sing a song. You can be kind to people. But remember in Matthew chapter 7, those people who also stood before Jesus and said, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? They got the language right in your name. They're doing all the right things, but they're missing something. And Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. He doesn't want you just to check off some religious checklist. I said the prayer. I was baptized. I know that Jesus died for sinners. I go to church every week. No, he is looking for servants who surrender to his authority and show service to him by loving his people. Will there be evidence on that day of your love for King Jesus? Examine your life to see if you have shown this service to his people. Jesus says in verse 46 that there are serious consequences. They will depart into eternal punishment. Punishment that has no end, my friends. Some people try to soften the blow of this by teaching a doctrine of annihilation that eventually the punishment will come to an end, that the effects of it are eternal, but not the punishment itself. 
But if you've gone through any significant amount of suffering, you know that one of the greatest mercies is the hope that it will come to an end. Oh, this is only temporary. Thank God, help me endure. But there will be no such mercy. Notice he parallels the eternal punishment with eternal life. Just as the faithful ones will live forever, the unfaithful ones will be punished forever. This is strong language to urge us all to see the grave importance of your commitment to God's people. If you've heard this warning today and realize that your life is lacking this evidence of love for God, let me leave you with your next step. Your first response should not be, well, I better get to work. Your first response needs to be, I need to get right with God. I need to fall in love with this glorious King Jesus. See how beautiful He is, how kind He has been, and want to give myself in service to Him. If you realize that you would stand on His left on this judgment day, don't prove your righteousness by serving, but recognize that Jesus offers to take the judgment upon Himself for you. We've been on this long journey through the book of Matthew, and we're almost to the end. We all know what the end says, right? What happens in these last three chapters after this. Right after Jesus gives this warning of the coming judgment, He Himself stands beneath the authority of the Romans and the Jews and receives condemnation. He is put on the left side. And He bears the wrath of God on our behalf, hanging on the cross. And He rises from the dead so that His sheep can be set free from this coming judgment. Free to serve. The only way to avoid this judgment, the only way to receive these blessings from the foundation of the world is to trust in King Jesus. Only then will your heart be filled with His Spirit. You will be given a heart that desires His righteousness. A heart that wants to serve Him by serving His people. So get your heart right with God. Trust in the work of Christ on the cross and give glory to the King by loving His people. Let's pray. God, thank You that we can call You Father because You decreed it from eternity past that we would be bought by the blood of Jesus and turned into kings of Your kingdom and servants of Your King. And we thank You that even in our ordinariness, our brokenness, You allow us to glorify You simply by eating meals together, by praying together, encouraging each other. I pray that You would take what we have done so far and multiply it, magnify it. I love this church, God. They have been so generous and so kind. I pray it would be such a testimony to this world that we would invite others in to experience a glory of the relationship with God through the blood of our Lord Jesus. Amen.